In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Omajushri, please accomplish this. Hey, good evening. So tonight we delve further into the exciting subject of the mental factors. Tonight we explore the uh, negative mental factors and the neutral mental factors, or the variable ones rather, and then a sort of comparison between sources. Before we dive in, any comments? Any thoughts on this? Is this uh, was this like terribly boring or tedious or exciting or interesting or <laughs> sort of like both of these topics, Dudra and Low Rick, and this is Low Rick, Low Mind. Rick is science of, or sometimes classifications of mental states. Both of these have like a lot of uh, material that sort of frames uh, the topic, sort of uh, introduces and fleshes out and explores the topic generally. The topic being, uh, in, in its broadest sense, for Dudra, the objective world, and for Lorik, the subjective world. And then there are these deep dives. In Dudra, we had the all the dharmas, and we went through that process of uh, uh, understanding the groupings of the dharmas and how the groupings were distinguished and, de and different, defined, and then how each member of each grouping was defined and differentiated. And here we have material about how mind functions, how conceptuality works, um, what mind is, We'll, later we'll get different different views on uh, gross and subtle minds, different types of m mental experiences or realms, and uh, <clears throat> the deep dive in the detail is on the the mental factors that accompany main minds, the fifty one in this case, and the, the groupings within them, the significance of those, the uh, distinction of each grouping and then the distinction and uh, definitions of each uh, category, each uh, entry, each mental factor individually. And um, Tonight we'll see one of the more interesting things that we'll see tonight is the issue of concomitance of what can arise with what. And uh, we'll look at little charts that I was Googling 
earlier and came upon. So I believe we're on page 139, chapter 10. Mental afflictions, the six root mental afflictions. The fifth section presents the six root mental afflictions attachment, anger, pride, afflictive ignorance, afflictive doubt, and afflictive view. And these uh, root mental factors are in opposition to the uh, 20 secondary mental afflictions, both of which in the category of um, mental afflictions. Oops. <laughs> but you, you reminded me that the, uh, the practice day I haven't looked at the, the doodle poll in a while. Were there a bunch of doodles? Is, does anyone know like what the most common date is? It May 6th or something? The middle one, I think. The, yeah, the second of the three. Okay, cool. Yeah, please respond if you haven't already to that doodle poll. And so if you're interested in another day, and this one, uh, ideally, more practice than talking. Last time was a lot of talking, and this time we, we can maybe be the first of a number where we start exploring uh, what's called Sutra Mahamudras, Mahamudra before receiving uh, the Vajrayana transmission. And it's not very different <laughs> before and after, except the way that you approach it yourself from what point of view of understanding uh, the actual content and the practices are basically identical. So here we have the six big ones. You can pick your favorite. We all know our, our at this point in life, we all know our main <laughs> our feature, our main feature or attraction that uh, dominates our mental, our emotional world. The definition of a mental factor, uh, sorry, affliction in general is a mental factor that functions to disturb the mind stream of the person who the, uh, can, in whose continuum it occurs. <laughs> it's a nice general description. It's a disturbance. The compendium says the definition of a mental affliction is any factor that upon arising arises with the characteristic of being thoroughly disturbing so that through its arising the mind stream arises as thoroughly disturbed. Yasumicha's commentary says the characteristic of being thoroughly disturbed should be understood as the definition of mental afflictions in general. And there are six types of disturbance. Disturbance due to distraction, which seems to be sort of general to all of them. Disturbance due to distortion, disturbance due to excitation, due to dullness, due to heedlessness, and due to non-refraining. So again, they, all the types of disturbance seem to be characterized really by distraction, but uh, distraction in the sense of being distorted, about things, blowing things out of proportion, generally being excitable or excited, 
um, or distracted due to dullness, the opposite agitation, and then dullness, and then heedlessness, not not sort of uh, being collected and just uh, easily set off and non-refraining from uh, things that disturb us. The first of the six roots afflictions is attachment. This mental factor keenly seeks to acquire something contaminated. <laughs> so if you're attached to uncontaminated things, it's not a mental affliction. Contaminated on account of conceiving it to be intrinsically attractive. Also, upon seeing a physical body, food, clothing, jewelry, and so on as something attractive, it, this mental factor, fixates on what was seen and does not want to be separated from it. Afflictions other than attachment are relatively easier to remove from the mind. And so this is the big one, as we all know. And the analogy is uh, it's relatively easy to remove dirt from a dry cloth. Attachment, in contrast, is as difficult to remove as dirt from an oil-soaked cloth. We probably all have had that experience. It clings to its objects and gives rise to other afflictions. Thus, attachment is a mental factor that is very difficult to remove on account of increasing one's fixation on objects of desire, intensifying longing to see, touch, and do such things with its chosen objects eat, consume, possess, and so forth. The function of attachment is to produce suffering. It's resultant suffering. The companion says, what is attachment? It's desire pertaining to the three realms and functions to give rise to suffering. There is, in general, no difference between attachment and craving, in general. There are three types of craving. Craving for the desirable, craving for dissolution, and craving for continued existence. The first is attachment that longs for happiness and wishes not to be separated from it. And that happiness can be based on uh, possessing or being in contact with or accompanied by the object of affliction. Uh, the second crave is second is craving for dissolution out of fear of pain, thinking, oh, how I wish I would die, wishing for non-existence life being too painful to bear. Or, how I wish this did not exist and that would not happen. Alternatively, wishing for things to be otherwise. Things, uh, difficult, painful situations to not exist. Or, how I wish this, sorry. The third is craving for continued existence, such as attachment to one's own aggregates of body and mind. Obviously, this is the root type of attachment that keeps us in samsara. And it's based, however, on ignorance, but it's the, it's the desire that the Buddha placed as the cause of suffering when he described the Four Noble Truths. It's desire for continued existence. And when that very craving becomes more intense and has the power to proliferate samsara, then it's called grasping. So when it becomes very intense, it turns into grasping or fixation. And uh, we see this in the uh, progression of the 12 Nadanas. 
seven is craving and that leads to grasping and once we grasp onto the object then that leads to birth old age sickness and death when that very uh let's see as a provisional antidote against at uh, antidote against attachment one needs to meditate on ugliness and the way to do this will be discussed later in the section on how to engage in the meditative application of mindfulness quick segue is that the next volume in this series which is on the tenets of the different buddhist schools is rather short uh, well actually it has two parts one part is on the non-buddhist schools and uh, that part goes on for quite some length the non-buddhist schools goes on for about 110 pages and the buddhist schools go on for only 150 pages so i was thinking maybe we could skip the non-buddhist schools and do just the Buddhist schools for the next course and go through the remainder of this book on mind training, i.e. meditation. I know that everybody's probably really tired of reading and studying meditation at this point because you've got it down and you've heard it a million times, but maybe, maybe it's worthwhile to do one more time. I don't know. Uh, let's see. The second root mental affliction is anger. This is a mental factor that upon perceiving any of the three objects of anger arises in as intolerance and hostility wishing to cause harm. It has the aspect of a very harsh mind that perceives the enemy as rep repellent and so on. For example, when someone speaks to us with harsh words, intolerance immediately arises in the mind. Compendium says, what is anger? It is hostility towards sentient beings. These are the three objects, manifest suffering or things that cause suffering. It functions as a basis for unhappy states of existence in this life and future lives, and also for negative conduct. There are three types of anger, objects of anger, sentient beings, one's own suffering, and circumstances that produce suffering, such as thorns and weapons. Interesting choice of examples of suffering. <laughs> thorns. Not a big one on our list these days, I think, but you get the point, so to speak. As for objects that induce anger, the sutras teach nine basic causes of hostility. Nagarjan explains those as uh, basically being the three that we just saw extrapolated against the three times, yielding nine. Um, so skipping the exact full wording of the quote and uh, skipping the next paragraph, the function and faults of anger are explained in the Sutra on the application of mindfulness. Now, those of you that know the Sutra on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness will immediately recognize that this quote is not in there. So this Sutra is uh, the, the Mahayana um, sort of companion piece to the uh, famous 
a Pali Sutta on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, and this is a, a different sutra. It's a Mahayana Sutra in Sanskrit, and it's extensive and uh, goes into other things, including this, when anger arises and for as long as it lasts, it makes a person's heart and mind burn. It alters one's appearance, it distorts the blood, vessels in the face, it makes one knowingly heedless towards others, it generates fear and worldly beings, it continuously creates defilement, unpleasantness and disharmony again and again in all places and lands. We all know that. Experience many evil consequences are explained. Person on the anger of uh, influence of anger in this life becomes an unsuitable basis of virtue. The color of one's face becomes unappealing. Others will see that person as reckless, creates disharmony, makes everyone appear ugly, and it causes the three gateways of behavior, body, speech, and mind to become defiled. Nice quote from Bodhicharavatara. We'll skip that. And that it produces vehement suffering produces hatred is like a stabbing pain when in the grip of thoughts of hatred neither physical pleasure nor mental joy can pacify such suffering sleep will not come and the mind refuses to relax and settle when overpowered by anger even those masters who kindly sustain one with wealth and status might get killed even their friends become weird and disenchanted other people may be attracted by gifts, but they're not happy to stay. In brief, there's no opportunity for someone under the sway of anger to live happily. Therefore, it's absolutely necessary to put a stop to anger by thinking that anger must not be given an opening. This has already been explained extensively in the section on love. So, here's the first, uh, well, the second one. Attachment was the first one, but this is the first one that will, there'll be many like this of uh, strong negative emotions. And uh, I think, pause for a minute and, and think about like, why do they present these and in such length and in this way? And um, I think the idea is that by contemplating how these negative emotions sort of bring about all sorts of um, accompanying negative situations. Ideally, when we experience them, instead of giving full sway to the emotion, and um, if you know, if we're unable to do uh, that, that practice of like looking directly at the energy of the emotion, which is really an advanced Vajrayana practice to be honest with ourselves, and is not something that we are easily and automatically able to do. It's actually easier to remember, oh my God, you know, this anger is going to like have all these negative consequences. People are going to think I'm an idiot. It's going to destroy relationships. It's going to taint this event. It's going to keep me up. It's going to produce illness in myself. You know, all these different things. And think about, like, is it really worth it to be angry? And what purpose does anger pr produce? You know, we tend to experience our emotions as if um, they are um, involuntary and we are uh, taken over by them without um, any choice in the matter. But clearly we do have choice every moment. And by really thinking about, you know, what am I doing spending valuable moments of thought 
or mind moments being engulfed in this negative emotion. So, I don't know. Any other thoughts on like how to how they're basically recommending to view these emotions? What's the sort of strategy by going through them in such detail so that we can identify them and think about their negative consequences and so forth? So, as we go through them, please chime in if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I, <clears throat> I like the detail because you can see it in others and not respond to it because you're like, well, ultimately they're suffering. Yeah. And, and no, I, I like that. So when I read through it, I try to think of people who act in these ways. Yeah. It's, it's often easier to see it in other people. Yeah. Right? And see what it does to them and to the situation, the, the space around them and so forth. But then to remember it when it happens to you as well. The third root mental affliction is pride. This is a mental factor that has the aspect, aspect of a grandiose mind caused by perceiving all kinds of excellent personal attributes, such as one's good qualities, wealth, and so on. It's an inflation of the mind that arises upon perceiving anything such as one's own power, acquisitions, social class, family lineage, height, and good qualities, or even just a pleasant voice or great strength. Just as when seen from a high mountain peak, peak other people below appear very small, this mental factor has an aspect of loftiness, holding oneself to be superior and others to be inferior. Pride functions as a basis for the arising of suffering and that it causes one to disrespect others and prevents one from developing higher qualities. We are advised to meditate on the groups of elements as an antidote to intellectual pride. So um, here we have an antidote suggested, which not many of them do. Uh, but here we're advised to meditate on the groups of elements, the elements uh, usually in this context referring to the ayatanas as an antidote to intellectual pride. You know, that basically we just have these sense faculties that experience sense fields and there's no owner of the situation that uh, one need be proud of. To reflect on the good qualities of exceptional being superior to oneself, think of you know the Buddhas and so forth who are so much uh, transcendently better, and to contemplate the vast number of things that one does not know. <laughs> I like that one. Think of all the things you know nothing about. <laughs> says, what is pride? It is grandiose mind based on the view of the perishable connect collection. What's the perishable collection? Is that like fruits and vegetables? Or the skandhas. Yeah, they perish. <laughs> they have a collection of perishables. It's, uh, it's a commodity. It functions as a basis for being disrespectful and for the arising of suffering here, based on the view of the perishable collection, indicates that every time pride arises, it arises in dependence on an innate 
self-grasping attitude, thinking me in the mind stream. When categorized, pride has seven divisions. I found this to be one of the most interesting in tonight's reading. Pride, <laughs> which is one of the divisions of pride. Uh, pride of superiority, excessive pride, <laughs> great pride. Uh, pride of thinking me, pretentious pride, emulating pride, distorted pride. Pride is a grandiose mind thinking. I am better than this one who's considered inferior to me. Pride of superiority is a grandiose mind thinking. I am better than this one who's considered my equal. Excessive pride is a grandiose mind thinking. I am better than this one who's considered superior to me. Pride of thinking me is a grandiose mind that based on perceiving one's own aggregates thinks me. That sounds also like ignorance. Uh, pretentious pride is a grandiose mind that believes oneself to have attained good qualities that one does not, has not attained. Emulating pride is a grandiose mind that, having perceived someone who is very much superior to oneself, thinks, I am only slightly inferior to this person. <laughs> and distorted pride is a grandiose mind that believes what is not a good quality within oneself to be a good quality. Actually, that was not the section. Uh, here's here's uh, the last one. Alternatively, the precious garland said, says, any deriding of oneself thinking I am useless is the pride of inferiority. That was very unusual. The pride of inferiority, which is as explained in the next sentence, deriding oneself thinking there's no purpose in my being alive is the pride of inferiority. How do you like that one? Like you know, people who are uh, so depressed that they're uh, contemplating suicide is a type of pride. Because it's so self-focused. Yep. I think. I think uh, so. Yeah. I, I have a, oh, I'm sorry. I have a question. If you had something else you wanted to say. First. No. No. Go for it. I was just wondering whether um, you know the seventh consciousness and the tendency to sort of say me, 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 me. Is there a, is there, it seems like pride is especially oriented towards that kind of activity. And I wondered if there's any kind of specific connection between those different than other afflictive emotions, or is, is that seventh really just a much more underlying, um, you know, the ignorance, as you mentioned before. I think the latter, I, I've never seen a specific connection to, although clearly the description of it, as you said, in particular, that pride that looks at the aggregates and thinks me, you know, in the case of the seventh, it looks at the eighth and thinks me. Um, it's clearly that type of pride, pride of thinking we exist, or I exist as an independent, continuous, unitary entity. Um, but, uh, you know, I would have maybe said, well, that seventh consciousness can also have a, a sense of a sort of desperation or, um, um, hopelessness and as opposed to pride. But I see now that that would be, um, what's it called? Deriding pride. <laughs> So I've, I've never seen that pointed out, but it certainly seems quite similar. The fourth root mental affliction is ignorance in general. 
just as in expressions like not seeing, not knowing, which is the Sanskrit word avidya for ignorance, is a term wherein the word vidya, i.e. knowing, is conjoined with a negative particle. So the negative particle in the word for ignorance, avidya, functions in exactly the same manner as those in not knowing, not existing, not understanding, and not in being unclear. For example, when one closes one's eyes and everything becomes black or covered in darkness, this prevents one from seeing external forms and so on in the same manner. Ignorance presents one from understanding the way things exist. So the definition of ignorance is a mental factor that engages its object in a confused manner. However, the, the compendium says, what is ignorance? It's an absence of knowing within the three realms. It functions as the basis for the distorted ascertainment of things, doubt, and all that is thoroughly afflicted. So um, when we say the three root poisons of, of passion, of attach, attachment, aggression, and stupidity, we're talking about the uh, defilements that are included here of attachment, anger, and this ignorance. And so we say we've, uh, you know, the translation has changed to stupidity and it's explained as sort of a, a, a basic obfuscation of mind and uh, accompanying sort of uh, attitude of stubbornness. Uh, but here it's very much dis more described as the as a cognitive ignorance, which is interesting. And then there's a nuance in it that um, we're about to get to. Ignorance can be understood in two different forms as a mental factor that is the confusion consisting in the absence of knowing. So not just not knowing like which way to go, or as a cognition that apprehends in a distorted manner, mistakenly thinking this is bigger, better, whatever. Sangha and Vasubandhu consider ignorance to be a mental factor that is primarily the absence of knowing, which is, uh, I think, what is captured in the translation of stupidity. Dharmakirti and others, however, in contrast, consider ignorance to be a confusion that involves distorted apprehension, thus the first interpretation understands ignorance to be a form of non-cognition whereas the latter understands it to be a form of miscognition. That said, both interpretations converge on identifying the wisdom realizing the ultimate nature of reality to be the opposite of ignorance, as well as the principal antidote that counters ignorance. The compendium says ignorance is defined as not cognizing reality as it is, given that afflictive views do not cognize reality as it is. They are defined as adhering to a distorted nature. The exposition by Yasu Mitra says, ignorance is distorted cognition because it opposes wisdom, because it is cognitive due to being a mental factor, and because the Buddha said that this was the case. <laughs> and the other explanation is not correct. The Buddha said so. Yeah, that's I. I was I wasn't sure when that came up. I was like, "We're right because the Buddha said so." Like, <laughs> well, that's the way. It, the second one is is yeah. Given one, okay. Yeah, they're saying that the, this is the way the Buddha described it, so we should uh, use it in that sense. Since so, yes, um, I have a 
question. Maybe it's stupid, but um, like some of the other ones, you can kind of understand how someone gets that way. And all of these things are supposedly, you're not kind of just stuck in ignorant forever necessarily. So, so what is the person getting out of being ignorant? The other ones I can understand in terms of sort of ego gratification, but. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think when you ask, what does one get out of it? Um, I think you can also ask that in the in the in a slightly broader way of like, why does one fall into that state of mind? Like it's like as you're saying, it's obvious with attachment things. They're we're we're into pleasure and anger. We're uh, because we're into pleasure, we get upset when we don't have it. Um, but with this type of ignorance in the sense of uh, not knowing, I think it's uh, due to laziness. Like, I don't know and I don't care. Um, on alter you know, that's the sort of ignorance in the sense of not knowing. Ignorance in the sense of misknowing is due to not understanding the nature of... Um, the nature of reality, mm -hmm. fundamentally, uh, by not having uh, been interested in looking into it. And, you know, by this definition, basically, almost everybody is ignorant. But I think the more common one that we're really talking about is that sense of, of laziness and apathy, of not being interested in, uh, in educating oneself about the subject or one's world by exploring it. And I'm sure we've all experienced that, you know, where it's just like, oh, I just don't care. <laughs> Anything else on that? Like, what about, does fear have anything to do with it? Like, Ooh. fear of, of seeing reality or not being able to cope with reality? I, I, that's a good point. I would think fear is more the driver of anger, but... Um... Fear of not being able to cope uh, could produce the the ignorance of avoidance. What do other people think about that? Yeah, I, when you were just saying a second, just thinking, you know, you give somebody a rational, logical argument and then back it up with evidence and they still refuse and then you kind of have to look at it like okay that means you're going to be wrong and they just don't want to be and so yeah definitely interesting ignorance 
yeah. the way it manifests. And also hope and fear, which often are paired as uh, sort of opposites, maybe, or accompanying uh, emotions, experiences, let's say, are not, don't appear on these lists. Interestingly, where to hope and, you know, so, so to some extent, because they don't appear specifically, you might say, well, they pervade. In some way, they pervade many of them. And uh, where do we find hope and fear in the Buddhist world? In what list? Is, is it absent entirely? Or do we not talk about hope and fear? Or The eight worldly yeah the big eight worldly concerns anyone know is it dharmas no it's it's dharmas yeah do you know the others anyone know the others loss and gain pleasure and pain uh in fame and infamy or whatever you call that one praise and blame praise and blame and hope and fear yeah four sets of uh experiences none of none of which praise and blame uh fame and infamy and then hope and fear so we wouldn't say that fame and infamy and praise and blame are emotions uh those are sort of like external phenomena right but hope and fear are internal phenomena it's it's an interesting list But it, it may be that they're not viewed exactly, they're not the same kind of afflictive emotions, I think, as the other ones. Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, people often ask about grief and sadness, too, but those, there are obviously emotions, but they aren't afflictive emotions in the same yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah, that whole issue of, of what an affliction is, as we, you know, read the description or definition of that, and then what gets included and what doesn't and why. Is definitely an interesting one to explore. And uh, we'll see towards the end the concomitants, which I think will add to this issue, and maybe uh, we can revisit it again there. Uh, let's see. So I think we ended up with ignorance is defined as not cognizing reality as it is, given that afflictive views do not cognize reality as it is, they are defined as adhering to a distorted nature. The exposition says, I read that, the function of ignorance is as follows, independence on ignorance, other mental factors arise, sorry, afflictions, independence on those, karma is created, and independence on karma, suffering arises which sounds like the first few factors in the 12 Nadanas. Thus, ignorance functions as the basis for the arising of all mental afflictions and faults. The exposition says every type of fault arises from the view of me and mine in the perishable collection. That view is ignorance. When it is present, there is attachment to that me and mine. And from that attachment, attachment, hatred, and so on, the other mental afflictions arise. Due to this, the cause of faults is said to be ignorance. Chandrakirti says, seen with the wisdom that all afflictions and faults arise from the view of the perishable collection, dot, dot, dot. A detailed explanation of this will be given below when presenting the causes and conditions of the mental afflictions. The fifth root mental affliction is afflictive doubt, 
a mental factor of doubt that upon considering any of the four truths, cause and effect and so on, wavers between two standpoints. For example, one may have wavering doubt, thinking, is the self impermanent or not? Now, suppose you want to travel a long road. If you doubt whether it's the right road, this creates an obstacle to your following. And similarly, afflictive doubt creates an obstacle to seeing the way in which things exist, and so on. The compendium says, what is doubt is to be of two minds about the truths, and so on. It functions as a basis for not engaging in virtue. So afflictive doubt functions to prevent engaging in virtue and abandoning non-virtue as, as appropriate. In general, there are many types of doubt, not all of them afflictive. We may, we may wonder if this man is Tashi or not, as an example of a non-afflictive doubt, or what the weather will be like tomorrow, or if this is Sarin's house. These are non-afflictive doubts. Uh, but doubt about the four truths is an afflictive doubt. Doubt about uh, the, tr the nature of reality, of impermanence, and so on, and what's true, a true cause of suffering and true cause of happiness, and so on, are afflictive doubt. The sixth mental affliction, root mental affliction, is afflictive view, of which there are five types. I personally found this confusing because it seemed to me that the way that they described ignorance was the first type, the view of the perishable collection. And which is why um, I think in our tradition, it's become more common to explain ignorance as stupidity, as basically just not knowing, and misknowing nests in this mental affliction of a wrong view or afflictive view. So there's famously these five types of wrong view, which are the view of the perishable collection as being the basis for the self, or owner, owned by the self, or making up the self. Secondly, the view holding to an extreme of uh, existence or non-existence. A thirdly, wrong view. And we'll see how they explain that. And then fourth, holding views to be supreme, such as I've got the one truth that outshines all others. And then holding ethics and vows to be supreme. If I do this one thing, it will be the most important thing in the world. We all have to do this one thing. If we all don't do this one thing, the world will end tomorrow. The view of the perishable collection as an afflictive intelligence that focused on me or mine within one's own continuum thinks of me and mine, or mine as autonomously me or mine. For example, it is an apprehension of the an exaggerated sense of me that arises in the depths of your heart when someone praises you or criticizes you, and so on, and you think, why me? <laughs> as if there is a me. This mind is called view of the perishable collection because it views mere mind on the basis of the aggregates that are assembling and disintegrating moment by moment. The compendium says, what is the view of the perishable collection? It is any acquiescing, desiring, discriminating, conceiving, or viewing that views the five aggregates of appropriation as the self or as belonging to the self. It functions as the basis of all views. Here, 
where the compendium explains the definition of the view of the perishable collection, the meaning of acquiescing, and so on, is as follows. Acquiescing means not being wary of a distorted meaning. Acquiescing. Uh, desiring means engaging its object distortedly. Discriminating means fully differentiating its object. Conceiving means actively adhering to its object. Viewing means perceiving its object. And uh, those are all explaining the quote that says it is an uh, the view of the perishable collection is an acquiescing, desiring, discriminating, conceiving, or viewing that views the five aggregates of appropriation as the self or as belonging to the self. Okay, a view holding to an extreme is an inflictive intelligence that grasps the focal object of the view of the perishable collection as either permanent or annihilated. The compendium says, what is the view holding to an extreme? It is an acquiescing and so on that views, and so on, referring to those five other activities of discriminating, fully differentiating, conceiving, and viewing. Um, that views the five aggregates of appropriation as either permanent or annihilated. This falling to an extreme that views something as permanent or annihilated is the main obstacle to making progress on the middle way. Thinking that things continue or end is the main obstacle to understanding the, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the true intention of the middle way or Madhyamaka view. which can be stated, which might be stated either of two ways. One way is that things are neither um, permanent or annihilated, or there are no things that can be permanent or annihilated. Which do you choose, the first or the second? Number two, I vote for two, peace. <laughs> Wrong view is an afflictive, and did I go, sorry, progress in the middle way, which is free from the extremes of viewing as permanent and viewing as annihilated. When categorized, the view holding to an extreme has two types, the view of permanence and the view of annihilation. Wrong view is an afflictive intelligence that upon considering something that exists, such as karmic cause and effect, action and nature, and so on, views it to be non-existent. So wrong views, not accepting the activity of karmic cause and effect. It functions to make one behave perversely regarding what to take up or cast aside, such as avoiding virtue and severing the roots of virtue, as well as engaging in non-virtue and welcoming evil intention, which happen when we believe that there's no uh, results to activity, as in the law of karma. The compendium says what is wrong view to denigrate the functioning of causes, effects, and agents and deny things that actually exist as an acquiescence and so on that conceives distortedly. Holding views to be supreme as an afflictive intelligence that focused on other pernicious views or the aggregates based on which per pernicious views arise holds either of these to be supreme.
compendium says, what is holding views to be supreme? It is any acquiescing and so on that views those views or indeed the five aggregates of appropriation that are the basis of those views to be supreme, principle, superior, and sacred. So if you think that the view of Madhyamaka is, is supreme, principle, superior, and sacred, that is um, holding to an extreme, holding a view to be supreme. That is one of the types of wrong view. Here the meaning of uh, listing supreme and so on is as follows. Holding something as supreme means believing it to be the most excellent. Holding it as principle means believing it to be unsurpassed by others. Holding it to be superior means believing it to be superior to others. Viewing it as sacred means believing it to be unmatched by others. So. If holding the view of the middle, if you view that holding the view of the middle way um, would be holding views to be supreme, does that mean that it's not superior to other views? What does it mean then? It means that the view of the middle way is not the view of the middle way. That there is no view in the view of the middle way. If you hold a view of the middle way as being su supreme, that means you have an idea of what that view is. And if you have an idea, that means you've conce conceptualized it. And you believe that the uh, cognitive referent exists as conceptualized. As yeah, I was going to say <laughs> that it's just a view. It's not the ultimate reality. Right. Right. It can be a helpful stepping stone. Yeah. But if you fixate it on, this, on it as being supreme, you won't view it as a stepping stone. And that's why we have that famous handout of the views of the Prasangika school. I think you, you've all seen that one. <laughs> there are no views. It's a totally blank page. Mary Beth's got a copy right there. All of them listed on that one page, all views of the Madhyamaka school. <laughs> okay, let's see. Holy ethics and vows to be supreme is an afflictive intelligence that's focused on defective ethics motivated by a wrong view um, on a vow involving improper ethics on defective austerities of body and speech or, or on the aggregates they are based upon. This view, taking one of these as its object, views it to be the same, the cause of purification and liberation that is to that is to be supreme the compendium says what is holding ethics and vows to be supreme it is any acquiescing and so on that list of five things excuse me that views ethics and vows or the five aggregates of appropriation that are the basis of ethics and vows to be purifying liberating and definitively releasing so only the uprooting of ignorance is purifying liberating and definitively releasing ethics and vows are not. These five views and the five non-view afflictions, attachment, anger, pride, ignorance, and doubt, a total of 10, are called root mental afflictions because there are no secondary mental afflictions that do not arise from any one of these 10. 
So we'll see in a minute that all of the other afflictions arise from one of these. And that is considered that one does not have um, four of the five, uh, any of the any of four of the five at the same time as any other one of four of the five. Those four being attachment, anger, pride, and doubt. Those happen independently and uh, universally concomitant with ignorance in the sense of wrong view. Um, let's see. Also, secondary mental afflictions are secondary to one of these ten, and given that these are the primary causes of the mind being afflicted, they are called root mental afflictions. The twenty secondary mental afflictions is presented in the sixth section of uh, phenomena as follows. Rage, resentment, concealment, spite, jealousy, avarice, pretense, guile, arrogance, violence, shamelessness, non-embarrassment, dullness, excitation, faithlessness, laziness, heedlessness, forgetfulness, lack of meta-awareness, <laughs> lack of introspection, that is, um, and distraction. Here's the verse summary, which says the same thing. Skipping that, the first is rage. This is a mental factor associated with anger. That's the wish to inflict harm when any of the nine basic causes of hostility are present, which was the three of sentient, what was it? Uh, sentient being, suffering, and the causes of suffering compounded by the three times. Compendium says, what is rage? It's an attitude that is hostile when a cause of ill will is present. Since it is a mind that is associated with anger, it functions as a basis for taking up weapons, punishing and so on, and preparing to harm. What is the difference between anger and rage? Anger is a disturbance with the depths of the heart that is intolerant of the object of anger, even when the object merely appears in the mind without being actually present. It's like igniting a fire. Rage is an amplification of anger wanting to physically beat, and so on. When a basic cause of rage is present, it's like a fire when butter is poured on it, blazing with tongues of flame. The second is resentment. This is a mental factor associated with anger that does not let go of the wish to respond with harm since it firmly holds a continuous grudge. It is called resentment or literally holding a grudge. Compendium says, what is resentment associated with anger and following in its wake? It does not let go of an intention to retaliate. It functions as a basis for intolerance. The third is concealment, which is a mental factor associated with delusion that wants to hide one's misdeeds or keep them secret when others mention them out of a wish to help. When others mention them, trying to be helpful to oneself, we try to conceal our faults. It has the function of directly causing regret and indirectly causing unhappiness or a wretched state. What is concealment associated with delusion, which presumably is an alternative translation for ignorance in terms of one of the non-view root afflictions. Since each one of these is being affiliated with one of those root afflictions, so 
delusion or ignorance. It keeps secret one's misdeeds when one is highly confronted. It functions as a basis for a regret and a wretched state. The fourth is spite. This is the mental factor that has no intention of regretting and confessing one's own faults when they are mentioned by others. But with animosity empowered by rage and resentment, wants to utter harsh words. It functions to generate misery by doing many unsuitable things, such as uttering harsh words. The compendium says, what is spite associated with anger? It's a thoroughly hostile attitude that is preceded by a mind of anger and resentment. It functions as a basis of wrath as well as harsh, insulting words, and to increase demerit and a state of wretchedness. The fifth is jealousy, the mental factor associated with hatred. Um, hatred was not one of the, the roots, but hatred was affiliated with anger. So it's associated with hatred that out of attachment to gain and respect is an inner disturbance of mind unable to bear the success of others. The compendium says, what is jealousy associated with hatred? It is an inner, dis inner disturbance of mind that out of excessive attachment to gain and respect cannot bear the notable success of others. It functions to cause unhappiness in rigid states. When jealousy is categorized, there are two types, jealousy of someone perceived to be equal to oneself, and jealousy of someone perceived to be superior to oneself. It's called jealousy because jealousy is a narrowing and contracting of the mind, literally into bed, and a narrowing of the in-between space. Not quite sure what the significance of the in-between space is whether that's the space between oneself and others or the space of the mind. The sixth is avarice associated with attachment. This is a mental factor that out of attachment to gain and respect wants to hold on to things and cannot let go of them. It functions to accumulate unnecessary things without allowing them to decrease. The phrase not allowing unnecessary things to decrease means to accumulate unneeded things without reducing them. The compendium says, what is avarice associated with attachment? It's a mind that firmly holds on to things out of excessive attachment to gain it and respect. It functions as a basis for not allowing unnecessary things to decrease, hoarding, presumably. The sixth is pretense associated with attachment or delusion. This is a mental factor that out of attachment to gain or respect wants to show with an intention to deceive others that one has good qualities that one does not actually have. It functions to establish wrong livelihood. Associated with attachment and delusion, this is a mental factor that out of excessive attachment to gain or respect displays what is not a genuine quality, it functions as a basis of wrong livelihood. The eighth is guile, associated with attachment or delusion. This is a mental factor that out of attachment to gain and respect wants to mislead others and make them aware, unaware of one's faults. It functions to prevent one from obtaining correct advice. The compendium says, what is guile associated with attachment and delusion? It's a mental factor that out of excessive attachment to gain and respect treats faults as good qualities. It functions to prevent one from obtaining correct advice.
The ninth is arrogance associated with attachment. It is a mental factor that upon seeing any signs of contaminated good fortune in oneself, such as good health, inflates the mind with joy and mental bliss. The compendium says, what is arrogance, joy, and mental bliss associated with attachment that arises upon seeing any signs of long life and contaminated good fortune based on good health and youth. It functions to assist all the root and secondary mental afflictions. Regarding the function of arrogance, there's a quote, Arrogance is the root of all heedlessness. <clears throat> arrogance functions as the basis of all root and secondary mental afflictions, such as heedlessness, and so on. So it's the, this one is all pervasive. The root of all basis of all root and secondary ones. The tenth is violence associated with anger. This is a mental factor that in opposition to loving kindness and so on wants to inflict injury on others. Associated with anger, it is to be unloving, uncompassionate, and unempathetic. It functions to be thoroughly injurious. Here, unloving is when one wants to inflict injury, and compassion is when one wants another to be injured, and unempathetic is when one relishes hearing or seeing someone else's someone else inflict injury. The function of violence is to injure or to harm. The 11th is shamelessness associated with any of the three poisons. It is a mental factor that does not shun wrongdoing, whether for the sake of oneself or for the dharma. The mental factor shamelessness is the opposite of a sense of shame. And it is, let's see, associated with attachment, hatred, or delusion. The three roots, it is not... not shun wrongdoing for the sake of oneself. It functions to assist all the root and secondary mental afflictions. So we have a couple of them that are all pervasive. Arrogance and shamelessness. The twelfth is non-embarrassment associated with any of the three poisons. Again, is a mental factor that does not shun wrongdoing for the sake of others. The prior one was, uh, does not shun wrongdoing, whether for the sake of oneself or the Dharma. And we, these are the opposites of the positive mental factors that we saw earlier, which was shame and embarrassment, which were respectively for the function of oneself and for others. Non-embarrassment is the opposite of embarrassment. It's associated with attachment, hatred, and delusion. It is not it is to not shun wrongdoing for the sake of others. It functions to assist all the root and secondary mental afflictions. The thirteenth is dullness. Associated with delusion, it's a mental factor that causes physical and mental heaviness and constant desire to yawn. <laughs> it makes the mind hazy and unserviceable in apprehending the aspects of an object. It functions to increase all the mental afflictions. The 14th is excitation 
It's associated with attachment, a mental factor that upon seeing it, attractive characteristics such as those in desirable sense objects scatters the mind so that it becomes unpeaceful. It functions to prevent the mind from abiding on its object. It is the mind that is disquieted upon beholding attractive characteristics and functions as a hindrance to clam abiding. The fifteenth is faithlessness associated with delusions, a mental factor that does not trust, admire, or emulate an object of worthy faith. It functions as a basis for laziness. Associated with delusion, it is a mind that does not trust, admire, emulate virtuous dharmas and functions as the basis of laziness, as faithlessness. The 19th is, uh, sorry, the 16th is laziness, associated with delusions, a mental factor that independence on sleep and so on, causes the mind to lack enthusiasm for virtue. It functions to reduce the side of virtue. Again, from this sutra on the application of mindfulness, a quote which we'll skip. And finally, the compendium says, what is laziness associated with delusion? It's a mind's lack of enthusiasm based on the pleasures of sleeping, resting, and lying down. It functions to hinder various virtuous, rather, practice. When laziness is categorized, there are three types. Laziness of indolence the laziness of adherence to unwholesome activities, and the laziness of self-disparagement. The laziness of indolence is having no wish to engage in any virtue and allowing it to slip away every moment of the day under the influence of procrastination. The laziness of adherence to unwholesome activities is to cling to worthy worldly activities and so on and not delight in virtue. The laziness of self-disparagement is to deride oneself in thinking out of indolence that someone like me cannot accomplish virtue. An example is to think with discouragement, how could someone like me accomplish the purpose of sentient beings? Sure, we've all had that thought. Uh, the 17th is heedlessness, which is a mental factor based on any of the three poisons in association with laziness, behaves carelessly without guarding the mind against accumulating mental afflictions and faults. The compendium says, what is heedlessness? Based on attachment, hatred, and delusion in association with laziness, it is to not cultivate virtuous dharmas and not protect the mind from impure dharmas. It functions as a basis for increasing non-virtue and decreasing virtue. The 18th is forgetfulness, which is a mental factor that makes the mind unclear and forgetful of virtue as a result of recollecting the objects of focus of the mental afflictions. It functions to distract the mind toward such objects of focus, or toward the ways that mental afflictions apprehend their objects of focus. It is recollection concomitant with mental afflictions. It functions as a basis for distraction, is forgetfulness. The 19th is lack of meta-awareness, which is a mental factor. Uh, this mental factor is an afflictive intelligence that engages in an activities the body speech or mind without meta-awareness it thus functions as a basis for evil conduct conduct 
and moral downfalls. The compendium says, what is lack of meta-awareness? It's an intelligence concomitant with mental afflictions. It engages in activities of body, speech, and mind without meta-awareness. It functions as a basis for moral downfall. The 20th is distraction associated with any of the three poisons. This is a mental factor that causes the mind to become scattered, distracted from its object of focus. Which distractions seem to be common to many of them, or if not all of them, and it has its own category too. It may be natural distraction, extended distraction, internal distraction, distraction involving distinguishing marks, distraction involving non-virtuous tendencies, or distraction involving attention. These six of natural distraction and so on are identified as follows. Natural distraction refers to the five sense consciousnesses. External distraction refers for the most part to mental scattering and excitation. Where we, our mind scatters to externals. Uh, let's see. Internal distraction refers to gross and subtle laxity and to craving for the delicious experience of concentration is a distraction. Distraction involving distinguishing marks is like the virtuous mental activity of thinking. It would be wonderful if others considered me to be a great meditator <laughs> or such like. Destruction, distraction rather, involving non-virtuous tendencies refers to the pride of, of thinking me seems to be so general it's a little bit odd that it's one of the types but anyway distraction involving attention refers to attention that thinks perhaps i should give up the path or the higher concentrations and practice the lower ones or such like although these are called all called distraction they need not be distraction that is a century secondary mental affliction the attributes of gross and subtle laxity and excitation as well as distraction and so on are explained in detail in the section of comma by the reason that these 20 from rage to distraction are called secondary mental afflictions is because each of them causes the mind to be affiliated sorry afflicted according to whichever root mental affliction it is associated with So here we enter into the world of concomitants, which is described in a, in a confusing way, just as the uh, concomitants of mind and mental factors was described in a confusing way. But what are the concomitant factors? Attachment is not concomitant with anger. So this is like saying, what goes with what? What arises with what? Like what colors match each other when you get dressed, important things like that. And uh, so first we have that attachment and anger don't go with each other. They don't go out together. They don't have lunch together. They don't hang out together. Just it is, as it is not with, uh, it's not concomitant with anger, just as it is not with anger. Likewise, it is not with doubt. Attachment and doubt don't occur at the same time. If you have doubt, you don't have attachment because you're uncertain about the object, whereas attachment requires certainty that you think it's an object. 
worthy of attachment. However, it is concomitant with the remaining ones. So attachment then goes with what were the remaining ones, pride and jealousy and wrong view um, and, and ignorance. And just as attachment is not with anger, likewise anger is not concomitant with attachment or pride or views. So you don't have anger and pride, and you don't have anger and views, interestingly. Pride is not concomitant with anger or doubt. You don't have pride and doubt as well as pride and anger. Ignorance is of two types, that which is concomitant with all the other mental factors and that which is unmixed. Unmixed ignorance is an unknowing of the truths. View is not concomitant with anger or doubt. Doubt is not concomitant with attachment, pride, or view. The secondary mental afflictions of rage and so on are not mutually concomitant. Shamelessness and non-embarrassment are concomitant with all non-virtuous minds. Dullness, excitation, faithlessness, laziness, and heedlessness are concomitant with all the mental afflictions. So this sentence that says doubt, sorry, well, the secondary mental afflictions of rage and so on are not mutually concomitant. It's a little bit confusing. Then moving on, why are attachment and anger not a concomitant? Because two contradictory ways of apprehending an object do not accompany one mind simultaneously. So these are... Um, contradictory ways of apprehending the object, attachment and anger. Why is attachment not concomitant with doubt? When a mind becomes doubtful, it does not maintain a single position, in which case it cannot be attached to its object, which attachment requires single-pointed focus. Just kidding. Um, and in the case of the remaining root, mental afflictions, pride, ignorance, and view, what about jealousy? Since attachment does not have a way of apprehending its object that is incompatible with those, they can be concomitant. Why is anger not concomitant with pride and view, respectively? Whatever object animosity may arise toward, the mind does not become inflated on account of that, and it does not mistakenly conceive the object in the sense of viewing it. So you need to view the object in order to experience anger. And uh, what was the other one? And uh, you, you can't have anger and pride as well. Why is pride not concomitant with anger? Because two contradictory ways of apprehending the object do not arise simultaneously. Accompany one mind. Why is it not concomitant with doubt? Because the mind does not become inflated on account of whatever ambivalent mental experience doubt has. According to those who assert the foundation consciousness, the eighth consciousness, ignorance is divided into two types. Ignorance concomitant with all the other mental afflictions and ignorance that is unmixed with them. The ignorance, the latter rather, the, uh, the ignorance that is unmixed has is twofold. Ignorance that is unmixed from the point of view of concomitance and ignorance that is unmixed from the point of view of the basis. 
Ignorance that is unmixed from the point of view of combatants is ignorance that is confused about how the truth exists. It accompanies the sixth mental consciousness, but it is not concomitant with the other root mental afflictions. Ignorance that is unmixed from the point of view of the basis is said to accompany only the afflicted mental consciousness. Most Buddhist masters uphold the standpoint that says this ignorance is concomitant with all the other five root mental afflictions. They're all the same. Why is view not concomitant with anger and doubt? This can be understood by means of the above explanation, similarly applied to view, as to why doubt is not concomitant with attachment, pride, or view. Why are the secondary mental afflictions associated with anger, such as rage, not concomitant with the secondary mental afflictions associated with attachment, and such as, such as avarice, because they have incompatible ways of apprehending their objects, such as ang uh, anger and attachment do? So anger and attachment. And uh, don't go together. Why must it sounded redundant? But why why must both shamelessness and, and non-embarrassment be concomitant with all non-virtuous minds? Because one cannot create non-virtue unless one avoids shunning wrongdoing out of consideration for oneself or others. That was one of the more confusing statements. Why are dullness excitation, faithlessness, laziness, and heedlessness concomitant with all the other mental factors because something cannot be a mental factor, sorry, a mental affliction unless it makes the mind unclear, scatter outward and become turbulent, unless it does not delight in virtue and is of benefit and is and is bereft rather of protecting the mind from non-virtue. It is explained in the commentaries on the compendium that the statement about dullness and excitation being concomitant with all mental factors is to be understood as being made by a sangha in order to conform to the to the tenets of the Hinayana schools. This point is that some form of mental serviceability and lack of serenity are present in all mental afflictions. Interesting little comment there at the end about um, dullness and excitation. Okay, the variables. The excitement is building. I can feel it. <laughs> Running out of freaking time. First, the sleep, <laughs> which I've been doing for the whole class. <laughs> Uh, is the mental factor that draws the object perceiving sense consciousnesses inward as the result of its causes such as the body becoming heavy weak and weary the mental attention attending to dark image and so forth it can be virtuous non-virtuous or neutral wait didn't you ask us if we would want to demonstrate some of these i think we could join in now on that one <laughs> okay one two three <laughs> Thank you. Uh, let's see. I'm going to start skipping around. Uh, let's see. Uh, it's time, the timely, like not happening in the right time of night. It's suitable. Uh, indicates a wish to make an effort in virtue by increasing the energy of the body. 
So, so what is sleep associated with delusion that draws the mind within? This is from the compendium and independence on the cause of sleep. It may be virtuous, non-virtuous, neutral, timely, untimely, suitable or unsuitable, and it functions as a basis for loss of activity, which is explained through the rest of the paragraph. Skipping that, the next page, the second mental variable mental factor is regret, which is the mental repentance of suitable or unsuitable actions done according to either one's own attention or others' insistence. Skipping the remainder of that, it functions, or the next sense, it functions to hinder stability of the mind. There are three types of regret, virtuous, non-virtuous, and neutral. So regret can be a positive mental factor. Regretting wrongdoing, it can be a negative one or a neutral one. The third variable mental factor is inquiry, and the fourth is analysis. Within the twofold categorization of inquiry and analysis, inquiry is a mental factor that independence on attention or wisdom examines any object in only a rough manner. And analysis is a mental factor that independence on attention or wisdom analyzes its object finely. And these two mental factors, types of uh, thought, um, occur as supporting factors for the achievement of the first jhana state. And I'm um, going to skip the quote. The function of inquiry analysis to act as a basis for pleasant and unpleasant states because each of these two include virtuous, non-virtuous, neutral instances. And skipping the rest of that. These four mental factors, sleep, regret, inquiry analysis, can become virtuous, non-virtuous, or neutral owing to the force of motivation and other accompanying factors. Thus, they're called variable. In conclusion, these 51 mental factors presented above found in the compendium of knowledge, Abhidharma Samachaya, also uh, by a Sangha, also appear in another text by Sangha, the level of yogic deeds, Yogacara Bhumi. And the quote just lists all of them, which we just went through. And uh, also in Vasubandhu's treatise on the five aggregates, which we did a class on, course on a few years ago, 51 mental factors are enumerated, just as in a Sangha's compendium of knowledge and levels of yoga deeds. After listing each of the 51, Vasubandhu concludes among these five are omnipresent, five have a determinate object. So this, the categorization, try to at least remember this, that these are divided into these categories. The five omnipresent, the five determined, object determining, the eleven virtuous, the six root afflictions, the remaining secondary afflictions, and the four variable ones. These presentations occur, therefore, as a type of synopsis in several types of texts, rather, of a song and brother Vasubandhu. And uh, let's see, there's also. Skipping the next sentence, there's also, similarly, the Tendra contains an extensive text called The Explanation about the Five Aggregates, composed by Priti V. Bandhu as an introduction to the compendium. And he makes a mistake on his source, <laughs> which is identified out here for some reasons, called out <laughs> that he misidentifies his source. Mental factors and other works, so they just compare the presentation that we had here which is from Asanga's works, and one of Vasubandhu's with Vasubandhu's other work is Treasury of Knowledge, 
where he has a slightly different systemization of mental factors, skipping through that all the way to the next major section or the next source, which is on page 186, the presentation and the finer points of discipline, which is a video commentary. Uh, there's another list of such things, which is somewhat different. Dislike, yawning, discouragement, nausea, nausea, not comprehending the right measure of food, <laughs> discrimination, inattentiveness, bodily dysfunction, malice, insult, and so on and so forth. Then there's the presentation of the great explanation, which is the Mahavadi Basha, the root text of the Vaibhashika tradition, and has a slightly different presentation. And then there's a presentation in a Sangha's compendium of basis, which is, uh, let's see, Bhumi Vastu, I think, which is, uh, it goes on for quite some time here, but um, pretty much does what we just went through in terms of identifying the categories, first listing all of them, then grouping them into categories, and then defining them and uh, did not, I mean, it has things, it has like hypocrisy, disrespect, malice, slander, dishonesty, ungentleness. Uh, so it has a number of different mental factors that if you ever need a definition of a negative mental factor, you can look here and probably find it. including thinking about one's friends, thinking about hurting, thinking about doing harm, thinking about uh, one's people at home, <laughs> thinking about thinking that one is deathlessness, deathless rather, thinking that inclines toward contempt for others. I'm at the end of this long quote, thinking that inclines towards class wealth. All sorts of interesting different ones that are described in this text. Um, and the final reference is to uh, earlier in the same source, sorrow, lamentation, pain, despair, all sorts of interesting uh, definitions, but not particularly helpful for us. And so that brings us to the conclusion of tonight's material and uh, comments. Oh, oh, just briefly here, let me show you these, these cool charts that I identified. Stole from the internet. So this is it. Uh, let me screen share this. Just take a couple of minutes on this. Okay, so there's a famous classification of these, of mental factors in the early Abhidharma tradition into 89 types. So we see, oh shoot, 
Darn, hold on. This is not the right list. Darn, I had these up and my computer messed up on me, of course. Hmm. Oh, okay, here it is. Somehow I was not able to download this chart. Um, it's a little hard to see. And I will screen share it. Uh, let's see. Stop screen share. Do screen share. Here. Okay, so we have um, this chart here. Ah. How did that happen? Here. And we see that we have a total of this famous number of 89. And I'll try to find other charts where they have this cool way of mapping con different states of consciousness with different uh, afflictions or positive mental factors. So first we have 12 sense sphere consciousnesses. So actually there's... Um, what is it, 30 sense, uh, sorry, 54 sense sphere consciousnesses. So these are 30, 54 consciousnesses, types of consciousness that occur in the uh, desire realm. And then in the form realm, we have another, uh, what is it, another 14 or so. So th uh, these are the ones that dissolve during the various stages of the bardo? I mean, of the last few moments of life? I'm sorry. No, those are different. That's another scheme. That's the 80 mental conceptions. That's a, 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 a different whole scheme, interestingly enough. And uh, so then we have the form, realm, consciousnesses. And then we have the formless sphere consciousness and then super mundane consciousness of an arhat. And... Uh, so within the sense sphere, we have uh, those which produce unwholesome karma, and we have a whole bunch that are rooted in greed or attachment, a bunch rooted in hatred, and some a delusion. So the three roots with, and then what other mental factors they're affiliated with, pleasure, wrong view, you know, so mental pleasure is, which, which mental factor is mental pleasure a subset of? Feeling, right? Feeling had mental and mental pleasure, physical pleasure, non and so forth. Wrong view, unprompted. I don't know. You know, so I share this with you without having fully understood what the hell this chart is, but it's a famous categorization in the early uh, advanced Abhidharma texts. 
Results of past unwholesome karma produces wholesome karma. Results of past unwholesome karma, functional all, <laughs> functional arhats only. And then in the sense sphere, we have uh, those that produce wholesome karma, result of past karma, and functional. And this is form sphere, not sense sphere. Thank you. The form, formless, uh, the form realm of the three realms. And then we have the formless realm of the three realms, that which produces uh, karma. And these are the four formless states and the result of karma. And in the prior one, we have it's, it's mapped against the shnanas with slight differences. Oh, identical in each set. But there's one set of karma producing, one set of karma maturing, and one set of functional, whatever that distinction means. Uh, so, I don't know. This is a famous categorization that uh, we saw this in another course we did where you have the, uh, the series of thought moments involved in uh, cognition. The bhavanga is the uncreated state. It's like the gap. It's like the Aliya Vijnana in the Theravada world. And then the, the bhavanga vibrates. <laughs> it, uh, it, it is arrested by an incoming cognition. Uh, the five door adverting, like one of the five doors. What are the five doors? The senses. The five senses, thank you. And this one turns out to be the eye consciousness. It then receives the impre impression of the external eye sense consciousness object, i.e. color or shape. It investigates it. It determines it. And then it starts producing karma, producing intention. There's the consciousness, uh, javana, um, becoming or whatever. And then it... Uh, regist registers it and it registers it. So it takes, let's see, how many mind moments for registration? Registration is where the um, the cognition comes to the registration desk in your brain and says, pay attention to me, and where you have an actual moment of conscious awareness of an object. So one, two, three, four. Seventeen. Six. Yep, the magical number of 17. You have to have two moments of registration because just as we all know, when you first register for something, it always fails and you have to register again. <laughs> anyway, these are some interesting peculiarities. I'll try to find there's these very cool charts that... Um, If you, if you like charts, there's this guy. Here's here's one other I'll show you. And this is from website uh, abhidharma.com. <laughs> and this is the uh, ob consciousness and objects. And so they have the different types of consciousness. And uh, see, they, they uh, we don't have the total. Um, visible, sound, smell, etc. Consciousness of uh, 
mental factors. 28 rupas, they have 28 types of form. And let's see, pick one more real quick and we'll say goodnight. That's, there's one that has all these colors that I'll, it's nice to look at. Here we go, the cooperation of the 24 Pachayas or conditions, conditioned relations. This is all in Pali, so it's useless, but um, the, the way that the combinations of different types of consciousness occur, you know, there's six consciousnesses, primary minds, and then there's 51 mental factors, and those uh, arise in various combinations, and apparently, um, I think I think 89 is the minimum number that happened in any one mind moment. I'm probably wrong. And then 121 is the maximum number of different elements that occur at the same time. I don't know. I'll, I'll work on that. I'm sort of rusty on my conditional relations, among other things. Anyway, let's dedicate the marriage and call it a day. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy ways of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. And by the way, I think the idea with the concomitants and the sort of mapping of what arises with what is done for the purpose of the practice of identifying, well, if I'm experiencing this type of mental state, then that mental state may give rise to these other type of root mental afflictions. And I should try to not let those other types of mental root or subsidiary mental afflictions arise so if i'm experiencing anger i want to i want to uh, not go into rage and violence and other things and, and so forth so to, to sort of limit your damage type of thing thank you see you soon take care thank you eric good night, good night.